Chapter 41 And time, what a reconciler it was, like distance, and death, what a perfect resolution of all possible discords, and how certain, and our own little life, how short and without importance. Georges de Maurier, The Martian, 1897 the next morning, I leave Zoya sleeping downstairs and dial Babette's attorney. She answers after the second ring. Deborah Gray? Good day. I'm Ross Elliott. This is a bit strange, but I live in the pantry of your client, Dr. Ellsworth? Ah, yes. Bobby has mentioned you. Right. So, I'm calling to let you know she passed away. It happened last Saturday. Sorry this is delayed information. Things have been crazy. I explain Babette's heart attack on the bus, her family's arrival, and my failure at keeping them out of the house. After a few moments digesting this, Deborah Gray speaks. Well, it sounds like her relatives took the news better than could be expected. I doubt I could have just slammed the door in their faces either. Anyhow, it's good you called this morning. I see in my planner Bobby made an appointment for tomorrow about changing her will again. Too late for that. So, what I will need from you is all her important papers. Bank statements, financial documents, identification materials, and the like. Do you know where she kept those? Yes. Good. That's a starting point. There may be other items I'll require later, but if you can bring Bobby's paperwork to my office today, that would be excellent. Let's see. Her executor must be contacted. I believe he handles the remains. Oh, I took care of that. In fact, she's probably already cremated. I'll call the funeral home later and most likely pick up her personal effects this afternoon. Well done. Come by afterward. It'll give me some time to review her documents I have here. Goodbye. Wait, I break in. There's more. I have questions like, well, what's my status here? Now Babette is gone, can her family make me leave? Actually, Ross, I want you right there. That house is a maze. I'd never find anything, so please stay put. If anyone gives you trouble, have them call me. I will create a trust account for utility bills and existing expenses. Oh, what a relief. Glad putting your mind at ease. You were, and are, important. I hang up. A great weight lifts off my chest. Tattooed sailors broadcast semaphore signals from the wallpaper, and new streaks of mold run across Babette's cheese under the glass bell. Thick fuzz coats every side. I remove the heavy cover and gag. Only one human in Portland might have found it halfway appealing. With a knife, I scrape the white sludge into a garbage bag and tie it shut. Upstairs, in my professor's bedroom, I remove Wells Fargo and Washington Mutual bank documents from the green trunk. Underneath lie American property records and materials related to the Tolman Street house. I cram these together with tax information and various other papers into a leather satchel from the closet. That should satisfy her lawyer for now. On my way out, I pause before the wall-mounted holy water dispenser. Jesus stares at me, bloody head crowned with thorns, wounds frozen in plastic. I dip two fingers into the shallow dish. They come up dry. After making a quick call verifying Babette is indeed cremated, I step outside and start the Toyota. It only takes a few minutes to reach Wilhelm's funeral home, windshield wipers in furious motion. Despite passing nearly every day on the bus, the old building never captured my attention. 
Now I walk by manicured shrubs around the small front garden and enter an elegantly furnished room. It contains antique furniture rivaling Babette's French Second Empire collection. A receptionist with short curly hair and rings on every finger examines me closely. Ellsworth, ah, yes, I spoke with you on the phone before. We have some personal items right here. She passes over a large black plastic bag and sets my professor's purse on the counter. So, do you know anything yet about mailing ashes to Canada? I ask. The woman bobs her head. <clears throat> yes, we did some investigation. It looks like it is possible. If you wish, we can pursue the necessary permits. I don't know yet what additional costs may apply. Well, it's what she wanted. Just let me know. Oh, here's where I'd like the remains sent. I hand over a scrap of paper with Bonnie Church's address. She accepts it and nods. We will contact you soon. The sack swings in one hand, and outside I heft it onto the passenger seat. Water droplets speckle the shiny surface. I sit down and slam the door. Rain patters against every surface, and I sit still for a moment amidst the tiny symphony for metal, plastic, and glass. The bag rests beside me. It must contain shoes that carried Babette's last steps. Whatever sweater my professor picked out to ward off the cold. Certainly a jacket and scarf. Maybe her trademark black thigh-high stockings that horrified so many students. At that image, I can't help but grin. Next, I drive toward Deborah Gray's home office. It isn't far, just another ten minutes south down in Milwaukee. I park before her house on a nondescript residential street and approach the door, satchel and purse in hand. At my knock, she answers, about five and a half feet tall with deep-set eyes under gray-tinged bangs. Ross? Pleased to meet you. Hurry. Get out of this weather, she invites. I follow her into a comfortable office filled with filing cabinets and legal literature on shelves. She settles down behind a hardwood desk while I sit in front and pass across my collected paperwork. Hope this is what you had in mind. Deborah Gray scans over a couple folders, then smiles with satisfaction. So, is this everything? It's the best I could do for now. Looks like a good start. Thank you so much. I unsnap the closure on Babette's purse and rummage through its contents. The funeral home just gave me this. It should have her driver's license. Oh, and passport, too. Deborah Gray takes these and slips them into a manila envelope. Excellent. So, do you have any more questions? Well, like we discussed on the phone, my main concern is having a place to live for now since I'm not well fixed financially. There's probably no concrete time frame you can give, right? She shakes her head. Not a date, but you will be given fair warning, when or if that becomes necessary. For the moment, don't worry. I want you there as my safari guide since Babette's house is such a jungle. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. So please, stay where you are. Come by in a couple weeks and bring the bills that have accumulated. No problem. So, I'm curious, did you know Babette very well? Deborah Gray purses her lips. Only the past several years, and mostly just professionally. She invited me over for lunch on a couple occasions. That's how I know it's fortunate you live there. Bobby often mentioned your helpfulness. I gulp back a sudden knot in my throat. Oh, well, thank you. The lawyer stands up. Then I think we have everything covered. I rise and follow her to the front door. It clicks shut behind me. Outside, rain has stopped falling, but water drops tremble on blades of grass and evergreen needles. Back home, I find Zoya in the study, a floral bathrobe wrapped around her. Television flickers from the satellite station once more. Come quick! she exclaims as I enter. 
It's a kokanee commercial where there's this funny ranger. He's chasing a Sasquatch who steals all the beer. It's so cute. Oh, damn, you missed it. Hey, what's going on? I woke up and you already gone. Is everything okay? Yeah, good news, actually. I visited the lawyer just now. She said I can stay here. Well, for now at least. No move-out date, anyway. That's great! So, we have the house to ourselves with a hot tub and enough food for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Things are looking up. Say, what's in the bag? I'll show you. I turn it upside down. Clothes tumble onto the carpet. A red plaid jacket, long dark scarf, and purple skirt are atop the pile. Zoya reaches down and moves these aside, exposing a thick beige sweater. As she lifts the knit fabric, it unfolds, and Babette's gray wig leaps free. It lands bristle-backed at my feet. Involuntarily, I lean down and pick it up. Stringy fibers rotate under my fingers, and rancid perfume mixed with Babette's scalp ointment wafts upward. Wet adhesive clings to the rim. My stomach churns. With a convulsive shudder, I drop it. Zoya's mouth opens wide. I forgot about that. Yeah, me too. Babette's wig was a part of her. You saw the old pictures. Before the operation, wigs were what made Babette female. It's as if they burned her as a man. She would have hated that idea. Well, they couldn't send her boobs home in a baggie. That might have been some consolation. Yeah, true. So, what'll you do with this stuff? Oh, Babette's clothes I'll toss in her closet. That wig is bound for the calcinator. It is kind of unnerving. Yeah, I don't want it around. Her ones upstairs are okay, but that thing gives me the heebie-jeebies. Zoya takes my hand and fixes me with a serious gaze. Hey, listen, this is really special. We'll probably never afford a fancy house in some nice part of town, so let's enjoy ourselves while this lasts, even though it's because of something so sad. I pull her to me and plant several kisses along one thinly plucked eyebrow. I know, it means a lot. Just having company through everything has been such a help. Zoya squeezes me back. I'm glad. Okay, next mission. Let's clean up your mess here and burn that wig. On a frosty afternoon, two weeks later, I drop by Deborah Gray's office, utility bills in hand. She takes the stack of unopened envelopes from me and smiles gently. You did mention financial difficulties before, correct? True. Before long, I'll find work, though with a full load of classes, it won't be easy. Deborah Gray blinks. Well, I examined the bank statements you brought in and discovered Bobby put your name on a Wells Fargo account. It contains a little over $2,000. I don't know how the rest of this will play out long term, but with joint accounts, any surviving party owns it entirely. How amazing! I can live on that for quite a while. Deborah Gray hands me a thick white envelope. Here is information regarding that. Also, I have something else. She passes a document with an engraved blue border across her desk. This is Bobby's death certificate. I think you should have a copy. It may come in useful concluding her affairs or with other issues. I take the paper, fold it in half, and slip it into my cargo pocket. Thank you. Thank you for everything. Later that afternoon, I am sitting at the kitchen table when Zoya comes in the front door. An orange smear streaks across her blouse. She leans down for a kiss. What's that, work-related injury? I ask. Ugh, some rugratosaurus tagged me with a crayon. Little monsters. So, what you got there? 
Babette's death certificate. The lawyer gave me a copy. Damn. She sits down across from me. For real. Look at this! It lists her birthplace as Yakima on October 22nd, 1928. That fits with the story in pictures. Mother was Mildred Sweet Holm, and father was A.J. Ellsworth. But check this out. It says her spouse is William. No last name. But that's obviously Billy, even though Sandra Bailey was her more recent wife. I don't know how that kind of information is collected. Zoya wrinkles her brow. I wonder if they just can't list someone having a same-sex spouse in official paperwork. She takes the document from me. Okay, cause of death is acute myocardial infarction? I believe that's a heart attack, just like we were told. It also said she had coronary artery disease, ischemic heart disease, systemic hypertension, and chronic lymphocytic leukemia? Shit, that's a lot going wrong with someone. Yeah. Also, I have good news. Babette put my name on one of her bank accounts, and it's got 2000 bucks. So I don't need work right away and can concentrate on graduating. Excellent. Or just buy me a diamond engagement ring. Zoya embraces me, cheeks aglow with mirth. I laugh and hug her back. In early March, Babette's executor, a school colleague I've never met, calls me announcing Deborah Gray has resigned all involvement with my professor's legal affairs. A new lawyer named Richard Sanderson requests my presence at his office. Avoiding downtown parking, I wait for the bus at my usual stop by Reed College. Swollen clouds temporarily withhold rain, and a few students hurry past up the sidewalk, bundled against winter chill on their way toward early classes. A heavy odor rises from decaying leaves by the curb, mixed with car exhaust. I exit on Washington Street and locate the address of a multi-story professional building. An elevator quickly rises to the eighth floor. The door opens, revealing a sign engraved on glass. It reads, Sanderson and Associates, Attorneys at Law. I enter a waiting room, the atmosphere crisp with apple-scented air freshener. Ross Elliott, I announce to the middle-aged blonde secretary, who frowns at my army jacket and patched cargo pants. I have a 9 a.m. appointment. She types on her computer keyboard. Uh, there you are. Please wait just a moment. Mr. Sanderson will see you shortly. I sit down and cross my legs. Illustrated sports journals and Hollywood gossip magazines fill a rack nearby. From my satchel, I remove a Charles Paldecock novel. The old-fashioned binding is still intact, and each leaf requires an incision from my pocket knife before turning. After just two pages, the secretary clears her throat. I look up and see a lanky business-suited man with gray hair and sideburns. He approaches, hand outstretched. Ross? Good to meet you. I'm Richard Sanderson. I snap the blade shut, fumble for a bookmark, and shake his hand. Likewise. I heard you wanted a meeting with me as soon as possible. Absolutely. Please come along. Would you like some coffee? Tea? Oh, uh, no thanks. I'm good. We enter a spacious office with tall windows. Sanderson circles behind a large wooden desk and gestures at two upholstered chairs before it. Pick a seat, then. Thank you so much for coming down in person. I always find it worthwhile having personal contact with parties involved in cases, and honestly, this situation is one of the most unusual ever. Things only get stranger, and we haven't neared the end yet. Definitely not news here. So, what happened with Deborah Gray? 
Sanderson strokes his chin. Well, matters of Dr. Ellsworth's estate became overly burdensome. The more stones I turn over, the more understandable her position becomes. This is far from any simple disposal of assets. I shift in my seat. Do I still have a home? That's my main concern. Sanderson bobs his head. For the moment, yes, you will be given adequate time if or when you are required to quit the premises. He pauses. Do you really live in the pantry? I grin. Oh, yes. For the last three years. It's not some tiny closet, though. Actually, quite sizable, but also where the dry goods are stored. Really, there's no way I could have made it through college this far without Babette's pantry. I see. You met Dr. Ellsworth as a Portland Community College student, then? Yes. I moved in shortly afterwards since she needed live-in help. If plans work out, I should complete my history degree at Portland State this quarter, though with everything lately, schoolwork has definitely suffered. Sanderson leans back in his chair. That's a shame. I'll certainly do what I can on my end to make this as stress-free as possible. So, do you mind if I ask more about your relationship with Dr. Ellsworth? No, go right ahead. Thank you. So, the professor paid you no wages for caregiving. There was no sort of oral or written contract? Not a paper contract, certainly. We had verbal understandings about her needs, although they evolved over time. I served as chauffeur, housekeeper, gardener, that kind of thing. In return, she didn't charge rent and fed me, actually better than I've ever eaten in my life. We also traveled together extensively, and she covered expenses. So my work was rewarded, but no money changed hands. The lawyer raises an eyebrow. Where did you two travel? Oh, all over the Northwest. We took a train through California once, mostly central and eastern Oregon. Babette really loved the high desert. God, she could lecture about it for hours. How fascinating. I rarely visit that part of the state. So, did you have opportunities over the years for observing Dr. Ellsworth's relationship with her family? I stare behind him through a long plate glass window. Tiny cars and bicycles make their way across the city streets, gray pavement dark from moisture. To a certain extent, yes. I know her granddaughter lived in the house before me for some time, but apparently they argued a lot. Babette asked her to leave just before I moved in. The daughters had occasional contact, but it seemed clear they weren't very close. That's why Babette spent her last Christmas with my family in Seattle. I had very specific instructions on dealing with them, she actually said I should call the police if they showed up. Sanderson leans closer. I see. So Dr. Ellsworth provided instructions in the event of her death? About the family, yes. I couldn't just leave them standing on the porch in the cold after driving from out of state, so I did let them inside. It was hard enough saying they weren't welcome. I'm just thankful they didn't order me out that night. I hate badgering you about this and understand you probably can't say for sure, but do I have weeks or more like months left at the house? Sanderson frowns. Well, don't quote me, but most likely months. This really is a complicated situation. Don't worry, I'll keep you in the loop as much as I can. Thanks. Let me know how I can help. Oh, I understand you've provided much assistance already. Dealing with her cremation, for instance. Well, it needed to be done, so I just took care of it. I knew it was what she wanted, 
Say, should I bring household bills here now? Yes, that would be excellent. Deborah Gray created a trust fund for those expenses, so you shouldn't have issues with services. If there are, call me, and we'll get things straightened out. Okay. Great, great. So, I mostly only wanted to make your acquaintance and confirm a few details. Thanks so much for coming down. Hopefully this will all be relatively painless. Oh, one final thing. Sanderson smiles cheerfully. Have you come across any legal papers dealing with Canada? His eyes fix me with an appraising stare. Canada? Uh, no. He shrugs. Probably not important. Well, thanks again. It was a pleasure meeting you. Let's talk soon. We shake hands once more, and I exit the building. Pedestrians bustle down wet sidewalks to go coffee cups clutched in hand. A small cluster of Hare Krishna youth stand on the corner, hems of their orange robes hanging beneath thick parkas. I cross Washington Street and catch my bus home. Two weeks later, I'm in the kitchen, study texts for a history final scattered across the red formica table. Outside, rain thunders down with dense fusillades, but indoors, a cozy pot of water heats on the stove. Condensation frosts each window with tiny white droplets. I pick through the tea packets, searching for rubos. As I tear a package open, the phone rings. High-pitched. Urgent. My heart jumps. The caller ID pulses bright red with every tone. 999-999-9999. Water bubbles over onto the electric burner, hissing angrily. I pay it no heed, eyes locked on the device. 999-999-9999. My hand stretches out and touches the receiver. 999-999-9999. I pick it up. Hello? The line goes dead immediately. Silence. Only sharp crackles emanate from the stovetop. Numbly, I switch the burner off. My tongue feels thick and dry. I turn back and inspect the caller ID. It now reads, Unknown. Babette would have changed it back to French immediately, but I hesitate, every nerve shaken. This is a perfect time for some tea, I announce out loud. No sound responds, except ever-present ticking clocks. I drop my rubos tea bag into a Union Pacific mug and pour in water. Aromatic steam rises. I lift the cup, inhaling tranquil, earthly wisps. Babette always declared there really is no exit, just illusions in a room with no doors or windows. The afterlife has no cellular connection. There's no way we can speak again, even if the devil is an Englishman. Just then, the phone rings once more, and I jolt, almost spilling scalding water down my shirt. This time, the caller ID reads, Sanderson and a Soch. I set the mug down and answer. Hello? Ross, this is Richard Sanderson. How are you? Oh, fine. Buried in school projects, but it looks like I'm still on track for graduation this spring. Ah, good, good. I'm glad for you. So, mm, there have been some, well, interesting developments. Are you sure Dr. Ellsworth kept no papers about Canada? Maybe that mentioned Nanaimo? Or even just British Columbia? I look down and tap a boot heel against the linoleum. Sorry. I've pretty much gone through the entire house. There's nothing like that here. Wish I could be more helpful. We have a serious problem. 
It appears the professor wrote two wills in two different countries. It's very irregular. Did she ever speak about such things? I take a tiny sip of tea. It burns my tongue, still too hot for drinking. She really was very secretive, even with me. Sanderson exhales heavily. <sighs> yes, everyone mentions her penchant for privacy. And as an attorney, I do know many people often take little consideration for affairs after death. Funny thing about that. Uh, thank you anyway. We'll get this straightened out. He hangs up with a click. I take my railroad cup and walk down the hallway. Babette smiles mischievously from her father Christmas portrait. Hope you know what you were doing, I comment. She stares back, rosy-cheeked, behind a false white beard. As I stand in contemplation, boots clatter up the front steps, and Zoya bursts inside. I catch a rush of cold, wet air before the door slams. Her hoodie is soaked. I reach out and help remove it. Damn, girl, let's get you warmed up. She shivers and embraces me. It's a long bus ride. Plus, even three blocks in this weather? Murder. Sorry, I'm glad you keep coming over. I don't know how I'd manage things alone. Does Sal mind you more or less moving in since Babette died? Zoya laughs. He misses me, but appreciates the freedom to entertain gentlemen callers without interruption. She raises icy hands against my cheeks. Yikes, you're frozen. Wait a minute. Careful. Ross, don't spill that on us. I sampled the tea. It's drinkable now. No worries. So here's something. I just talked with the new lawyer. Oh yeah? What's up? More obstruction of justice on my part. I feel bad making his job harder. They discovered the convent. He specifically asked if I knew about Nanaimo. What did you tell him? Claimed ignorance. Canada? Where's that? Anyway, just before, I got a weird phone call that kind of spooked me. In fact, you almost caught me talking to Babette here. I gesture at the festive holiday picture. Zoya turns, then leans in closer. Her lips purse. That is not Babette. What? It's Billy. Take a good look. I unhook the frame and squint. I don't know. Are you sure? Pretty certain? Let's compare. From underneath a stack of ornate saucers, I find the Chinese plate with Albert and Billy lacquered to its center. My eyes rove back and forth. God damn, I think you're right. Zoya nods. Yeah, the faces are similar, but they wear slightly different glasses. Same with the jaw. It's very subtle, though. I shake my head. All this time. She even mentioned dressing up for that picture once. God, totally laughing inside that she fooled me. All the lies and fantasies. Oh, plus it seems she wrote two wills, one American and one Canadian. I'm sure that has something to do with Bonnie Church. In fact, I should call her. Uh-huh, says Zoya. The plot thickens. Well, you take care of that. I gotta change into something dry. She heads downstairs. From the kitchen, I dial Bonnie. She answers almost immediately. Hello? Hey, it's Ross. So the jig is up. I spoke with Babette's new lawyer today, and he knows about the convent. Poor guy had no idea what he was getting into. Did I stall long enough? On the other end, Bonnie cackles. <laughs> oh, don't worry. Every 
everything is finished. I knew the lawyer would find out soon enough anyway. How's that? Mother Superior probably contacted him. Oh, is she ever pissed? Did you meet her? What happened? Oh, <laughs> Lord, no. I sent my attorney to deliver the news. With money from Babette's Canadian assets, I bought out Mother Superior's share of the convent. We'd just presented an eviction notice for her, plus all the other so-called nuns. Such a prime location. I think I'll turn it into a rental. Mother Superior must curse the day she met Babette. True, eh? I drove by once last week and saw her working in the front garden. Oh, a face full of pure hatred? I guess that makes sense. Maybe this whole thing is just elaborate revenge for not putting out when Babette wanted some illicit Catholic sex. Perhaps she really bore a grudge against that place and never said exactly why. I just followed instructions. This has been so amazing. Just a year ago, I was near bankruptcy and now everything changed. She helped me so much. I laugh. Well, me too. I had almost nothing when Babette died. Turns out she left me a bank account with a couple thousand bucks that saved my ass, or at least my chances of graduating from college on schedule. Oh, Ross, that's nothing. You'll get her house, I'm sure. What? Oh, I don't know about that. Maybe the library. Babette wouldn't cut you out completely. She really loved you. She always told me how much you meant. Thanks. But since there are two wills, it might void everything. Well, I'm no legal expert, but there's one thing. If you do inherit Babette's property, just remember, I'd love some of her antique furniture, eh? You know, like in the guest bedroom upstairs. The French Second Empire stuff? That's right! I have a perfect room to set it up properly in my house. Don't count on it. Things could go anyway still. Oh, I'm sure Babette made certain you'd be taken care of. I take a gulp of tea. Anyway, you got her ashes just fine, right? Bonnie laughs. <laughs> yes! Thanks for that. After a lifetime traveling, she now spends sedate days in a fancy urn on my mantelpiece. I'll wait until better weather comes along and everyone moves out before spreading them in Mother Superior's garden. That's probably the most appropriate conclusion to this whole adventure. Seriously? Well, keep me updated if anything else happens. All right, Bonnie. We'll talk soon. As I hang up, Zoya enters the kitchen, wearing thick slippers, sweatpants, and an old Killing Joke t-shirt. She reaches over and grabs my mug, sips at it, then makes a face. Needs a little sugar. So, everything good up north? Yeah, sounds like Bonnie's got her business sorted out. Zoya smiles softly and runs long fingernails across my neck. I pull close, hands on her hips as we spin slowly in a tight embrace. On the morning of April 15th, less than two months before my graduation is scheduled, Richard Sanderson calls again. His voice is raspy and low. Ross, we figured everything out. At last. He clears his throat. <coughs> What's that? I ask. <coughs> Sorry, I've been a little sick. This case has really kept me up. So, here's how it all boils down. Professor Ellsworth wrote two wills, one for the United States and one for Canada. This greatly confuses the issue because a will automatically supersedes any previous document. However, 
whether legally or not, her Canadian assets have already been dispersed, throwing everything into turmoil. What I have the power to do is make a simple judgment in this case and settle it once and for all. Ross, you are now the owner of everything in Dr. Ellsworth's house. That includes her library, furniture, appliances, and all other personal property. Her car, too. Pretty much everything that isn't bolted down. The house itself will go to her daughters, who will most likely sell it and divide the money. They likewise inherit Dr. Ellsworth's American investments, any other real estate, bank accounts, and other finances. So, do you have any questions? My brain flickers through fuzzy pictures. Babette smiles, her round face beaming. The kitchen shudders and patterns dance on the red formica. Tattooed sailors flash joyous semaphore signals and wallpapered whales cavort along wavetops. Downstairs, the library rumbles. Thousands of authors, millions of pages muttering together. Emile Gaborio, Barbara Tuchman, Blasco Abanez, Marcus Aurelius, and everyone else. Now, all of them. Mine. Ross, are you still there? Yeah. Sorry, this is a little overwhelming. How much time is left then? Oh, this process will still take a while. There isn't a firm date, but I'm sure it'll be months away. My advice is plan ahead. Emptying that house will be a major project, whether you keep it all or sell things off. Understood. And thank you. Thank you so much for deciding this way. Well, I made the best of a tangled mess. This seemed like the fairest way toward honoring Dr. Ellsworth's intentions. Is there anything I've forgotten? No. I guess that's all for now. Excellent. Well, let's keep in touch. I set down the phone. My stomach floats, slight and tingly. Every object, from orange enameled pots on the wall to antique clocks and empty cheese bell, appears new, viewed through a prism of possession. As I blink back tears, Zoya pads down the hallway, a towel wrapped around her sleek form. Babette's lawyer just called, I begin. Everything in this house belongs to me. The house itself goes to the family. Oh my god! So they finally figured out the wills? I don't think so. It was more like nobody could make sense of the wills, and he just made an executive decision. And he had that authority? The relatives can't challenge it? Hmm. I don't know. It seems almost too simple. Did he give you a deadline? No. It looks like I still have a while. Good, because with final projects, I'm swamped. Zoya releases her hair from a topknot. The locks swing down low, past her shoulders. Seriously? What's the plan now? I exhale slowly. <sighs> well, I gotta sell off some things. There's enough furniture here for three ordinary houses. Bonnie Church wants the antique set upstairs. <laughs> really? That's quite a gift. She's been a huge ally. Plus, what would we do with such nice stuff? Our gutterpunk friends would tear them up than spill beer on the wreckage. I'd rather treasures like that find a good home. Anyway, there are enough other things I can raise funds with to cover storage costs. Maybe someday we'll have a house with enough shelves for Babette's library. Zoe reaches over and takes my right hand. She kisses each knuckle, then smiles up at me. This will be a lot of work. 
In mid-June, Bonnie drives a rental truck down from Canada. Its brakes squeal as she pulls up, and I step outside for an embrace. Late afternoon air surrounds us, warm and still. I help carry several bags inside and set her belongings down in the kitchen. Margarita? I ask. Bonnie nods, wavy brown hair tied back. She dabs at her forehead with a handkerchief. Thanks. I need one. Such a drive. Well, glad you made it. This should improve things. Just wait a moment. Liquor splashes into the blender with mixer and ice. Its whirling blades churn up a light green froth. Bonnie picks up a bottle, the Spanish label old and cracked. This looks ancient, and it's mezcal. Judge Shoemaker probably picked it up from some Tijuana grocery store around 1916. Makes a fine margarita, in my opinion. I pour the slushy mixture into two glasses and pass her one. She takes a sip. Thanks. Too much highway driving for one day. So, looks different here. I see a few things are gone. Yeah. Now that I've graduated from school, there's been time. The piano was a headache. I gave it to my friend Sal. Took a whole crew of folks getting that thing moved. Soon I'll have an estate sale and rent storage for what's left after that. My parents passed me down their old Volkswagen bus, the blue one parked outside. It helped a lot since I gave Babette's car to Naomi. Just taking inventory was a project. It turns out we have four Victrolas here. I'll just keep the hand-crank-powered one. There are three complete China services. I could start a catering company. Bunny grins. Oh, I almost forgot. Congratulations on your graduation. She lifts her glass. Yeah, thanks. It feels good. Speaking of long trips. I smile. We clink our rims together. So, where are you going? Will you move in with your girlfriend? What's her name? Zoya. No, her place is too small. For now, I'll stay with friends in a house on the east side who have a room open. Well, I'm grateful for the furniture. She takes another drink of her margarita. Outside, a neighbor's lawnmower roars into life. Breeze through an open window cools sweat on my brow. Seriously, it's a relief getting that off my hands. I did bring one special item in return. She picks up a paper sack on the floor and extracts something brown, rectangular and plastic. What's that? Bonnie pushes her gift toward me. The urn Babette's remains were shipped in. I know she wanted them spread up in Nanaimo, but I think you should have half. I take the plastic box and open a catch that releases the lid. Inside sits a clear plastic bag containing dense gray ash flecked with dark clumps. Wow. Thanks. I'll come up with something appropriate for them. I tip back the margarita and ice fragments crush between my teeth. Shouldn't be hard. You're creative enough. Hey, I know you like writing. Think you'll ever turn Babette's story into a book? Not that anyone would ever believe it. Perhaps someday. I examine the box. What's this metal disc taped here? It's stamped 336994. Bonnie brightens. Oh, that's her toe tag. Every deceased gets issued numbers matching metal tags clipped to their toes. That stays with each body until cremation. Once the ashes cool, attendants sweep them into a bag, place it inside an urn, and tape the tag on top. Just a way we keep things organized in my industry. So, how are things up north? Any Mother Superior drama? No. The nuns packed up and left for God knows where. I cleaned the house and rented it out weeks ago. You know, 
I did find something interesting. Did I mention that after Babette opened up more, she was always talking to me about her penis? No, but I'm hardly surprised with how much she liked shocking people. It was a whole second career for her. True. In this case, it was more flirtatious, eh? Just enough to let me know she had mastered ways of giving pleasure without one, but I'd always just laugh it off. Babette never got pushy, like you said with that one girl who lived here. Naomi, yeah, she needed you too much to risk being overly inappropriate. That was always the power dynamic at play. Bonnie takes a deep drink and sighs. Ah, so damn yummy. But doesn't it seem like she really tried seducing everyone at some point? Well, all the women at least. I've wondered from some things you said. Do you think she wanted that with Rosalind? It's tough saying. We know incest wasn't a deal-breaker for her. She definitely obsessed a lot about Rosalind's looks, but maybe that was simple curiosity. I'll always love Babette, but she could still be a real creep. Bonnie laughs. <laughs> at least a lovable creep at times. So anyway, she left quite a bit of paperwork with me, mostly financial and property related, but there was one thick manila envelope she said never to open. In fact, Babette declared in the event of her death it should be incinerated. Always so dramatic, you know? Well, I'm only human. Last week, I followed her instructions and burned the envelope, but couldn't resist peeking inside first. What was it? Oh, materials from her transition operation. There were several before and after photographs. You know, Babette was always so self-deprecating, claiming she had a tiny penis or that it wasn't even usable. What a liar! She had a huge cock. It was really nice, actually.